Salvete omnes, welcome to the AP Latin Podcast. The goal of this podcast will be to cover the lines from Caesar's De Bello Gallico and Virgil's Aeneid that are found on the AP Latin curriculum. Each two-part episode will cover a selection of lines from Caesar and Virgil. I will present the Latin and English of the text, providing relevant clarification, background, and cultural information that will help put the readings in their proper context. I encourage you to read along with me as you listen to the Latin and to use the English as a way to check your understanding rather than relying on the English for understanding. Each episode will conclude with some essential questions to consider as you process through the meaning of the text. Parati, eamos. AP Latin Podcast, Episode 16b, Aeneid Book 2, Lines 567 to 588. In this episode, you will learn some philology, and you will see that Aeneas wants to kill Helen as hard as he can. Yam quadeo super una seram cum limina vestae servan tet tacitam secretin sede latentem, tindari daspicio, dant clarin kindia lucem, eranti passem quaculos percuncta ferenti, illa sibin festose versob pergamatucros, et danaum poinet deserti conjugas iras, primetuens, troi yet patriae communis erinis. Abdiderat se sat qua ris in visa sedebat. Ex ar se rignes animo subit ira cadentem ulciski patri et sceleratas sumera poinas. Scilicet taic spartin columis patriasque macenas aspiciet, parto quibit regina triumpho. Conjugiumque domumque patris nartosque videbit, iliadum turbet frigiis comitata ministris. Ocederet ferro priamus, troi jarserit igni, dardanium totiens sudaret sanguine litus, non ita, nam quetsi nullum memorabile nomen, feminae in poinest, habetaic victoria laudem, extinxisse nefas tamen et sumsisse merentes, laudabor poinas animum quexplesse juabit ultricis fam et cinere satiasse meorum. Talia yakta bet furiata mente ferebar. And now indeed I alone was left, when I catch sight of Tindarida, keeping the thresholds of Vesta and hiding silent in a hidden seat. The fires give a bright light to me, wandering and carrying my eyes through everything everywhere. That one fearing in advance the Teucrians hostile to her on account of Pergama overturned, and the punishment of the Danaeans and the angers of her deserted husband, the common fury of Troy and of her homeland, had hidden herself and was sitting, hated, at the altars. Fire flared up in my mind, rage enters to avenge the falling homeland and to exact wicked punishments. Of course, will this woman unharmed look upon Sparta and ancestral Mycenae? Will she go as a queen with a triumph produced? Will she see her marriage and her father's home and her children, accompanied by a crowd of Trojans and Phrygian servants? Will Priam have fallen by the sword? Will Troy have burned in fire? Will the Dardanian shores have sweated so often with blood? Not so. For although there is no memorable name in the punishment of a woman, this victory holds praise. To have extinguished the sin and to have exacted deserving punishments, nevertheless, I will be praised. And it will be pleasing to have fulfilled my mind, the reputation of an avenger, and to have satiated the ashes of my people. I was tossing out such things and was being carried by an enraged mind. Last time, we looked at the lines that ended the AP syllabus selection of Aeneid Book 2. 
but I skipped a chunk of the text in the middle to cover in a standalone episode because its authenticity is debated by scholarship. Without going too far off the path, I want to give you a brief overview of philology, a few of the methods used to establish the authoritative version of a text, and why some scholars think the Helen episode might not be originally by Virgil. Virgil died in 19 BC, before he had fully completed the Aeneid. The story goes that Virgil, knowing he was going to die with the work incomplete, ordered his poem to be destroyed upon his death. Augustus promptly disregarded Virgil's wish, and instead tasked two of Virgil's friends, Lucius Varius Rufus and Plotius Tuca, to prepare the poem for publication with as few editorial changes as possible. This is why, from time to time, you will encounter incomplete lines within the poem. This is all well and good, but things start getting muddy in the 5th century, when a grammarian named Maurus Servius Honoratus was writing a commentary on the Aeneid. In his comments on Book 2, line 566, Servius writes that after Ignibus Aigra Didera, there were verses about Aeneas encountering Helen that were edited out of the original text by Varius and Tuca. And according to Servius in his comments on Book 2, line 592, Varius and Tuca deleted the Helen passage for two reasons. Because it was shameful for a hero to become angry at a woman, and because there is a contradiction with some information about Helen reported in Aeneid Book 6. Because there is no reference to the Helen episode prior to Servius, this is the earliest evidence we can point to for the existence of this passage as part of the original Aeneid, which in and of itself wouldn't seriously add complications to the situation. There are lots of fragments and passages of Roman writers that would otherwise be totally lost if not for their being quoted or mentioned in another author's work except that modern scholars have called to question Servius's credibility, especially about the reasons he gives for the redaction of the passage and about the Servian manuscript tradition. The subsequent scholarly attempts to unravel the puzzle of the Helen episode, from the 1800s all the way up to the present, have taken the forms of arguing for and against Servius's reliability and of narrative analysis of the passage itself. When looking directly at the Helen episode, philologists ask, and, through meticulous and exhaustive analysis of the text and comparison with the rest of the Aeneid and Virgil's literary corpus as a whole, attempt to answer questions such as whether the episode fits within the overall design, structure, and purpose of the immediate context and of the Aeneid as a whole, whether certain words in the passage are words Virgil would have used, whether the Latin grammar within the passage is consistent with grammatical structures of Virgil and of his time period, whether the episode is stylistically consistent with the rest of the poem, and whether the metrical structure of the lines is consistent with Virgil's poetics. All that being said, while it is an interesting diversion to dip our toes into the world and techniques of classical philology, College Board is treating the lines as authentic, so we are too. Aeneas first sees Helen illuminated by the fires raging around the city. Take note of the fire imagery present throughout this passage, highlighting the rage he feels at seeing her and the destruction of the city all around him. And so, inflamed with fury and swept away by emotion, he starts giving himself a pep talk, convincing himself that killing Helen is the best course of action. His rationale is threefold. How can she get to go home free when all of the Trojans have died? She deserves it, and it will feel really good to kill her. The strike against the plan? That murdering a helpless woman is shameful because there's no glory in it. Yet he is willing to sacrifice his reputation and take on shame just to satisfy his desire for vengeance. And in a culture where personal honor is equal to currency, this is a huge deal. But we have to ask ourselves why Aeneas says that she deserves to be punished. The language used in this passage is full of rage, fury, wrath, and vengeance. 
but we need to keep reminding ourselves that this is Aeneas' perspective as he is looking back on the events. He is explaining to Dido how he felt at the time, but in his retelling of the events he also weaves in his recognition, looking back after the fact, of just how terrified Helen was with everything happening around her. The Erinyes, commonly known as the Furies, are goddesses of vengeance and punishment, particularly for those who break oaths or commit treachery. Virgil uses Erinus as a metonymy for the fact that Helen is afraid of vengeance from Trojans and Greeks equally. She has no place left to go, and so she has hidden herself in the temple of Vesta, goddess of the home, hearth, and family. It is interesting that Helen is sheltering herself in this particular temple, not only because she sees Vesta as her last refuge since she no longer belongs to a Greek or a Trojan family, but also because Aeneas was just entrusted with the task of taking care of Vesta's sacraments, and then he is almost immediately faced with the temptation of violating one of her temples with bloodshed. And he just got through watching Pyrrhus commit a murder defiling an altar in the process, and now he is seriously contemplating doing the same. It could be that Aeneas feels so powerless and hopeless at this point that he just wants a place to direct his rage and frustration about all that is happening. He sees Helen, and even though he knows on some level that she isn't really the cause of everything, she is a good scapegoat, which is the best kind of goat, especially if you want one to murder. Neglecting the fact that he had just described Helen huddling in fear of the wrath of the Greeks and of her husband, Aeneas now envisions her returning as a triumphant queen to Sparta, with a retinue of Trojan women as her slaves. He lets himself become so carried away by emotion that he is willing to commit monstrous acts and totally forget his responsibilities and his family, whom he was on his way to go check on, contrary to the pietas Aeneas is usually known for. So Aeneas has convinced himself that he is the hero Troy deserves but not the one it needs, and he is about to exact some vigilante justice on poor Helen when Venus pops in and holds him back, literally, and we play out the rest of Book 2 as covered last episode. I personally can't help but wonder what Dido is thinking about Aeneas as he shares with her his thoughts on killing a woman in cold blood. We know she has been and will continue to be influenced by Cupid wearing his Ascanius suit, but does Dido have empathy for Helen? Does she blame her? Does she view Helen as guilty or as a victim of forces beyond her control? These are probably unanswerable questions, but as we move into Book 4, we will get to dive deeper into Dido's psyche and we will get to see yet another mortal pawn sacrificed to the relentless drive of fate and the scheming of the gods. Get your minds right, because book four is coming. As we close out the episode, here are some essential questions to consider. How does Virgil highlight Aeneas' emotions when he sees Helen for the first time? Aeneas mentions that Helen is staying near a temple of Vesta. Why might Helen be seeking safety in the temple of this particular goddess? How is fire imagery used throughout the passage to mirror the external environment and Aeneas' internal state of mind? How does Aeneas attempt to talk himself into exacting vengeance on Helen? Why would there be perceived shame in his actions? What role does the desire for vengeance play in driving Gallic action in Caesar's commentary? Gratias ago pro auscultando, valete. <laughs>